This is Pepe Alberto, and you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. Come a little bit closer. All right. Hello, everybody, and th- welcome to the second episode of The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm John Lerner. We have a great show lined up for you tonight. Lots to talk about, lots that went on in the week that was. But before we get to that, let's do what we're always going to do on the very beginning of the show, and that's review what happened on... This Day in History. Today is November 21st, and on this day in history, in 1620, the Mayflower reached Provincetown, Massachusetts. The ship discharged the pilgrims at Plymouth, Massachusetts, but that wasn't until December 26th, so whatever. On this day in 1783, the first successful flight was made in a hot air balloon. Holy crap. On this day in 1789, North Carolina became the 12th state to ratify the U.S. Constitution. On this day in 1877, Thomas Alva Edison announced the invention of his phonograph used to record and reproduce sound. What would we have done without him? We would not be doing this show. On this day, November 21st in 1922, Rebecca L. Felton of Georgia was sworn in as the first woman to serve as a member of the U.S. Senate. Aww, maybe someday we'll have a woman president, but probably not. Okay, on this day in 1934, The New York Yankees purchased the contract of Joe DiMaggio from San Francisco of the Pacific Coast League. On this day in 1963, U.S. President John F. Kennedy and his wife Jackie arrived in San Antonio, Texas. They were beginning an ill-fated two-day tour of Texas that would end in Dallas and would end in tragedy. On this day, November 21st in 1979, the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad, Pakistan was attacked by a mob that set the building on fire and killed two Americans. Nice to know our relationship has improved. On this day in 1980, an estimated 83 million people tuned in to find out who shot J.R. on the CBS primetime soap opera, Dallas. 83 million people tuned in to watch a soap opera. Yep, we were living in the Twilight Zone. On this day in 1982, the National Football League resumed its season following a 57-day player strike. On this day in 1993, the U.S. House of Representatives voted against making the District of Columbia, also known as Washington, D.C., the 51st state. And they still won't do it. On this day, lastly, in 2000, the Supreme Court of Florida granted Al Gore's request to keep the presidential recounts going. Good thing they did that. It turned out well. No, no, it didn't. It was almost as disastrous as this year's presidential election. But hey, we're all optimists here. That's what happened on this day in history. And who knows? Perhaps we'll make history right here tonight on Radio Free Brooklyn and be studied for years to come. But probably not. You're listening to The Next Best Thing. I'm John Lerner, and stay tuned. Every 
day It's a getting closer Going faster than a roller coaster Love like yours will surely come my way Hey, hey, hey Every day it's a getting faster Everyone said go ahead and ask her Love like yours will surely come my way Hey, hey, hey Seems a little longer Every way Love's a little stronger Come what may Do you ever long for True love from me Every day It's a getting closer Going faster than a roller coaster Love like yours will Surely come my way Hey, hey, hey Shoo, 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 shoo
You're listening to the next best thing. Here's what's making news tonight. All right, folks. So, really quick before we get into some current events and what's going on in the news, what's going on in the world, I just wanted to go over a couple things. As we gain our footing here at Radio Free Brooklyn, uh, I don't know how many of you out there listen to the old-fashioned AM-FM radio nowadays, but if you listen to any stations here in New York, particularly WFAN, the most popular sports radio station here, you're probably familiar with a guy named Mike Francesa. Listen, when you get back from Mars, call us, okay? You're losing me. I don't know what you're saying. Hallelujah, okay? Big deal. I don't know what you're saying. What are you talking about? Excuse me? You get lost, you dope. You could not be more wrong. Absolute garbage. This was such a joke. Yes, that's Mike talking to his callers who call in all the time every day. You see, Mike Francesa is probably one of the most famous sports talk show hosts ever, really. He's based right here in New York City. He's on WFAN, the CBS radio affiliate. 101.9 FM, and he's been on for, I mean, according to him and really everybody, probably 112 years. I mean, he started here in New York with Chris Russo. They had Mike and the Mad Dog, hugely popular show. It really kind of changed the kind of landscape for sports radio. And he's been solo since 2008. He's very popular, even though he talks to his listeners like they couldn't be dumber. And on that note... I think I really do want the next best thing here on Radio Free Brooklyn to be kind of a back and forth a discussion. So I'm thinking we'll open up the phone lines every now and then and see what you think about whatever we happen to be discussing. The phone number here at Radio Free Brooklyn is, do you have a pin? 718-928-9RFB. That's 718-928-9RFB. 9732. We probably won't take any calls tonight because we're just trying to kind of put that out there and see the response we get, but perhaps starting next week, and if not, definitely starting the week after that. We're going to have it a discussion-based show, folks. You can get involved right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Something to keep in mind. Anyway, moving right along, uh, some stuff that's been going on in the past week. If you haven't heard... The cast of Hamilton, a hugely popular musical that if you've never heard of, you probably shouldn't live in New York City. The Hamilton cast addressed the vice president-elect, Mike Pence, when he attended the show last week. Right before their final bows, the cast addressed him directly. And they said, quote, We are the diverse America who are alarmed and anxious that your new administration will not protect us our planet, our children, our parents, or defend us and uphold our inalienable rights. Now that sparked a furious response from Donald Trump, the president-elect. And how does he usually respond to anything? On Twitter, because he's 12. He, yeah, he went on Twitter and repeatedly criticized the cast, the show, said the show was overrated. I think I've heard them. I think I've heard him say that about a few things. And he demanded an apology. He said the theater should always be a safe place. They harassed Mike Pence. They should be ashamed of themselves. Loser. Mike Pence later said he wasn't offended at all. In his own words, he said that's what freedom sounds like. 
kind of makes him want to throw up, but at least he's an adult. They, the cast of Hamilton obviously hasn't apologized. They have nothing to apologize for. This was one of a, a number of Twitter rants and attacks the president-elect went on in the past week. You have to think to yourself, does he really have nothing else to do? I think he probably should have other things to do. But who am I? Nobody. All right, moving right along. Mitt Romney, under close consideration for Secretary of State, also in the mix, Rudy Giuliani. Does, do either one of those make any sense? Look, Mitt Romney couldn't have been more anti-Trump throughout the camp- campaign. He went on television. He said, Donald Trump is a fraud, a phony, a loser. He didn't say loser, but he said he was a phony. He said he was a fraud. And on numerous occasions, he went on any, anyone who would have him on and said that this was insane, that no one should vote for him. So naturally, now they're having meetings and probably he's going to be in the cabinet. These people... These people. Moving right along. There's been a rash of anti-Semitic and racist graffiti spotted around New York City since Trump's election. Shocking. And according to the Daily News, the trend continued this past weekend when Straphingers spotted swastikas and pro-Trump hate messages on the one train. Hate crimes in the city have reportedly increased over 30% in the last year. I wonder what, I wonder if that has anything to do with Hmm. Since the election, those hate crimes have included dorm room vandalization with swastikas at the new school, swastikas etched on the door of the state senator Brad uh, Hoyleman, Hoyleman? Brad Hoyleman's Greenwich Village building, swastikas on the 1 and B trains, and swastikas with Go Trump graffiti at Adam Yauch Park. Lots and lots of swastikas. Yeah. I wonder if there's any correlation. Probably not. It's just a coincidence. Right? No. Not, not a coincidence. Anywho, we're going to talk a little bit about the election later. Um, not too much, because God knows I could go on and on the entire show about it and my feelings about it, and I almost did last week, and I certainly could this week, but I won't. We're going to save it for later. Moving right along. Okay, today... Jeez. This is really uplifting news. Today, at least six children have been killed and more than 20 injured in a school bus crash in Chattanooga, Tennessee. The immediate cause of the crash was unknown. We're wishing them all the best. Today, ex-NBA star Dennis Rodman was charged with a hit-and-run, giving false information, and other crimes after driving the wrong way on a Southern California freeway, prosecutors said. Now... Giving false information. I'm very interested in what that might have been. Uh, I don't know about you, but Dennis Rodman, along with his teammates Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan, were all over the place in the 90s. They were a powerhouse team. And Dennis Rodman is, if nothing else, pretty recognizable. I can just imagine him being pulled over and being like, Oh, yeah, the... uh, the names of Dave, Dave Riddle, Dave Riddle. Huh. Dennis Rodman was most recently in the news for two reasons. One, he was an ardent Trump supporter. I don't know if you watched The Celebrity, watched the Celebrity Apprentice. I did. He was on that show, and they apparently became close. He was also in the news probably two years or so ago because he took a team, a basketball team, to North Korea and became best friends with Kim Jong-un. 
and went on CNN drunk to avidly vouch for Kim Jong-un. So, nice to know he's doing well. I'm sure his old teammates wish him the best. Moving right along here, Monday Night Football is currently underway between the Oakland Raiders and Houston Texans. Neither team will enjoy a home field advantage as it's being played in Mexico City at the Estadio Azteca. I'm sure Donald Trump loves that because God knows he loves the he loves the Mexicans. Ugh, I don't all right. Well, between the altitude and the pollution in Mexico City, a lot of sports executives and athletes have called the Estadio Azteca, quote, the worst place to ever play a sporting event. They say if it starts to rain and the pollution is actually brought down into the breathing area, you're going to be gasping for air. So I hope they're doing well. We'll check on the score and give it to you soon. In the meantime, though, we're going to take a little break from all the good, fun news we've been reporting on, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. Whenever I'm out a-wandering, chasing a rainbow dream, I often stop and think about a place I've never seen. Where friendly folks can gather and raise the rafters high. With songs and tales of yesteryear Until they say goodbye Well, there's a puppy in the parlor And a skillet on the stove And a smelly old blanket bed And Navajo wolf There's chicken on the table But you gotta say grace There's always something cooking At old Joe's place Now folks come by around evening time As soon as the sun goes down Some drop in from right next door And some from out of town Pick it Puppy in the parlor and a skillet on the stove and a smiley old blanket and a Navajo wolf. There's popcorn and the popper and a porker in the pot. There's pie in the pantry and the coffee's always hot. There's chicken on the table, but you gotta say grace. There's always something cooking at old Joe's place. Now they don't allow no frowns inside. Leave them by the door. There's apple brandy by the keg and sawdust on the floor. So you've got a Look for the busted neon sign that flashes E-A-O's Well, there's a puppy in the parlor And a skillet on the stove And a smelly old blanket that a Navajo wolf There's popcorn in the popper And a porker in the pot There's pie in the pantry And the coffee's always hot There's sausage in the morning And a party every night There's a nurse on duty If you don't feel right There's chicken on the table But you gotta say grace There's always something cooking at old Joe's Small piece. 
Straight to the end
What do we do now? This evil is unfolding, like it or not. It can unfold and you can lie there, or it can unfold and you can resist. It is a week. We were asked to give him a chance. This is how he has wasted that chance. 33 hours after Hillary Clinton's concession, just had a very open and successful presidential election, now professional protesters incited by the media are protesting, very unfair, the morning he was to announce his first staff appointments. 
Wow, the New York Times is losing thousands of subscribers because of their very poor and highly inaccurate coverage of the Trump phenomena. The New York Times sent a letter to their subscribers apologizing for their bad coverage of me. I wonder if it will change. Doubt it. The New York Times states today that DJT believes more countries should acquire nuclear weapons. How dishonest they are. I never said this. 68 days until his inauguration, still bitching about his paranoid fantasies about the media, still lying about what he said during the campaign, still referring to himself in the third person, still obsessing over one newspaper as if he were 15 and it had refused to go with him to the junior prom. Give him a chance? What? In the hope that he will someday grow up enough to be able to see over the top of the Oval Office desk? We do not have time for the White House edition of Celebrity Apprentice starring President-elect Pussy Grabber. Give him a chance, because we're all supposed to pretend that this is a normal man and that was a normal election. Because we're all supposed to forget that the Russians interfered with the election and the involvement of the FBI at minimum affected the outcome. Because we're all supposed to forget that the Russians interfered with the election and the involvement of the FBI at minimum affected the outcome. Because we're all going to follow the Washington Post and call them populists instead of white supremacists even though they are white supremacists. Give him a chance. All we are saying is, give fascism a chance. Who knows? It might not be as bad as we think. It might not be a bottomless pit. This is not my president, and judging by the margin by which Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, at this rate it'll be larger than Kennedy over Nixon in 1960. This is not America's president either. And so we will resist. Each statement of substance or policy or intent will be met with one of resistance. Each action and event staged by this man who lost the popular vote will be met with protest by that resistance. Each politician whom he fooled with the charm from one of his other personalities, from the banana Republicans already lining up to lick his boots to the Democrats like this fathead Joe Manchin, will be rejected by that resistance. Since no Democratic or liberal politician has yet stepped forward out of the morass of Politics, Inc. to take on the responsibility of the resistance, I, with complete awareness of the presumptuousness and arrogance of this statement, volunteer myself and I will gladly turn over all these burdens to any more legitimate and informed lawmaker or political or cultural leader who has the guts to take these burdens. I do not want violence. I am not proposing the overthrow of the government by any means other than legal and political. I think protests should be limited to Washington, Trump Tower, and the Trump Hotels. I have no pie-in-the-sky plan to have the Electoral College alter the outcome somehow. I will even acquiesce to a President Pence. Just get this man out of here! And I will repeat what I said last week. This Trump is a profoundly and proactively self-destructive individual. It is now our sacred duty to help him finish his self-destruction. If it is going to be him destroyed at his own hands or democracy destroyed at his own hands, it is going to be him. And the first step is to complete the delegitimizing of his presidency and his election. Delegitimizing that he himself began. Who said the opinion polling was rigged? Who said the election itself was rigged? Who refused to say whether he would honor the outcome of that election? Why, the president-elect did. And he is the president-elect. We're supposed to give him a chance. We're supposed to believe him. Fine. I'll give him a chance. I'll believe what he said. I'll take his word for it. The polling was rigged. The election was rigged. And he is not bound to honor the outcome of the vote, and neither are we. 
Oh, and I'll also take his word for it about the Electoral College. Not his backfilling, cover-your-ass tweet from yesterday about its genius, nor its companion boast, which proves he will never get over being a president who lost the popular vote, that if there were no Electoral College, he would have simply won bigger. No, his tweets from the night of November 6, 2012, when Big Brother Trump thought Barack Obama would win the Electoral College vote, but lose the popular. He lost the popular vote by a lot, and on the election, we should have a revolution in this country. The phony Electoral College made a laughingstock out of our nation. The loser won. We can't let this happen. We should march on Washington and stop this travesty. Our nation is totally divided. Let's fight like hell and stop this great and disgusting injustice. The world is laughing at us. More votes equals a loss. Revolution. The election is a total sham and a travesty. We are not a democracy. Our country is now in serious and unprecedented trouble like never before. Those tweets, the president-elect deleted that night. But one other one is still alive on his account at last check. The Electoral College is a disaster for a democracy. A disaster for a democracy. Let's fight like hell and stop this great and disgusting injustice. More votes equals a loss. Revolution. So saith the almighty Trump. Whatever you wish, sir, you asked for it. Resist. Peace. For those of you who don't recognize that voice, it was that of Keith Olbermann. Now, just hearing that name will probably spark various reactions in people. Keith Olbermann is a very polarizing figure. A lot of liberals don't even like Keith Olbermann because of his aggressive presentation, I guess you could say. But here's the thing about Keith Olbermann. First of all, he's, he's a very good broadcaster in the sense that he's very well-researched, a very good writer. He's hosted shows on ESPN. He hosted Sports Center for a long time, Football Night in America, Countdown with Keith Olbermann on MSNBC, Countdown with Keith Olbermann on Current TV, Olbermann, and second show on ESPN. And now he does something called... He did something called The Closer for GQ, and now he's doing something called The Resistance for GQ, which you can find on their YouTube page, and you should check it out. I played that, and I went back and forth on whether or not I would do that, especially in its entirety, but he does kind of sum up a lot of what I've been feeling, but can't really, I mean, express very as well and as articulately as he did. I don't necessarily understand the protests. I had a friend who went to one of the protests <clears throat> up here, I believe it was in Columbus Circle, and he said they didn't march anywhere and it was just kind of a therapy session. Now, if that's what that is, then by all means, great. I think everyone could use a therapy session or two right about now. But in terms of actually taking action, I mean, the point of protests is to get a response, hopefully change things. And if you're just... I don't, I don't know. If, if the whole point is just to kind of come together and grieve, okay, that's fine. Don't call it a protest. I think he's right. I think protests should be limited to D.C., Trump Tower, and maybe that's it. He says Trump hotels. But again, I just I don't know what the point of that is. But here's the thing, and here's where, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I think, oh, well, we should just throw our hands in the air and get over it. I don't think that at all. I think protesting is kind of doing that. Because what are we... Because protesting are therapy sessions. That's not, that's not going to... Um, 
induce any change. So I have a few questions. For example, people are outraged, people are mourning, but I think they're kind of griping about the wrong things. For example, the the vast difference, I know I know that to talk about the popular vote is kind of a non-starter because that's just not how we do things here in America. But at this point Hillary Clinton has more almost 2 million 2 million more votes than Donald Trump. I was like 12 when Al Gore and George W. Bush went head to head and that whole thing went down in 2000. So I didn't really know what was going on, but once I did kind of get old enough to learn about it and understand it, it's never made sense to me. The idea, and I said this last week, but I'll say it again because it bears repeating, the idea that we in this country have a system in which somebody, two people, two candidates can go head to head, one of them gets more votes and loses. That's a messed up system. That's, I don't understand it. We pride ourselves in our democracy, in our free, you know, republic, and how everyone, one vote, one voice, whatever. It's not, I mean, it's all horse crap. Two million, almost two million more votes. And she, and she lost. Al Gore got thousands and thousands of more votes. And he ended up losing because the Supreme Court decided, eh, we'll give it to George W. How, what, I mean, why are people not protesting that? I get it. We knew that was, those were the rules going into the election. So we can't change the rules after the game has been played. Fine, I agree. But it's, so why wasn't there outrage in 2000? There was, but why, why didn't it get carried through? Why aren't people talking about it now? People bring it up every now and then, but they don't, they just kind of, here's my problem with Democrats and liberals. It's the same one Keith Olbermann seems to have, and it's the same one Michael Moore seems to have, even though he and I disagree on a lot of things, Michael Moore. Liberals, they, do you think that if Donald Trump got two, almost two million more votes, never, okay, if Donald Trump got almost two million more votes, Hillary Clinton had never released her tax returns. Hillary Clinton was holding meetings with her daughter and her husband and her sister and brother and giving them security clearances. If Hillary Clinton was about to go to court for fraud over her non-university in which she settled, Donald Trump just settled that case, even though he said multiple times throughout the campaign that he never settles, settles for losers. And he just settled it. Um, Hillary Clinton didn't, couldn't get away with any of that. She was brought down by this email non-scandal. Um, and yet, what are liberals protesting? Nothing. They're protesting, they're saying, they're protesting the fact that, they're protesting Donald Trump's language. And as outrageous and as atrocious and repugnant as that is, that's not... I mean, you know, that's not because we disagree with the way he talks and the way he thinks. It's not illegal for him to think that way. It is illegal for him to have been in cahoots with Russians, a foreign country, doing what they were doing during the election. If they were 
coordinating together, hacking emails, having these leaks, that's got to be illegal. It's illegal for him to have ties to other to businesses in other countries that will now benefit because he's the president. One is not allowed to enrich themselves with their public service post, being the president. You're also not allowed... To, there's nepotism laws. You're not allowed to ever... You're not allowed to appoint your children or your spouse or your siblings or your sons-in-law. Donald Trump wants to give security clearances to all of his kids, his son-in-law. I mean, there's just so much really sketchy stuff going on and no one's saying anything. Everyone's just sitting back and being like... You know, we talk about normalizing him. Well, that happened a long time ago, and now people are just complaining about all the wrong things. For example, if nothing else, okay, if we want to complain about the Electoral College, fine. I, like I said, we're not going to change the rules of the game after the game has been played. However, one thing that I think people should be taking action towards is the fact that, as Time Magazine pointed out in a November 17th article, which you should look up and we'll post to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash NBT radio, next best thing radio, NBT radio. The Electoral College was created to stop demagogues, demagogues like Trump. First of all, by the way, Time Magazine, hardly some obscure liberal online publication. They write a whole article about how the Electoral College was primarily designed to stop a demagogue a tyrannical mass leader who preys on our prejudices from becoming president. Alexander Hamilton wrote in Federalist Paper number 68, the electors were supposed to stop a candidate with, quote, talents for low intrigue and the little arts of popularity from becoming president. They were basically, there's no law that says the electors of each state have to vote for the candidate that won their state. No law that says that. Donald Trump and no one really... Okay, by the way, I should mention this. I said this, if we talked a little bit about how I'd like to make the next best thing a call-in show. This would be a great time. This is an example of something, a, discuss, a topic that I'm sure people have varying opinions about. So this would be a time to call in and tell me how stupid I am. And the number is 718 928 Nine seven three two, that's seven one eight nine two, eight, nine seven three two. Just something to keep in mind. Um, yes, the, the electoral college. The whole point, in addition to making sure that states were represented equally, which they aren't. I mean, hello, since since before I can remember, for so for at least the past three presidential elections, it's all come down to Florida, which. What? What? Why in God's name would we leave anything up to Florida? I mean, look, I grew up going to Disney World. I think Florida is a beautiful place, but give me a break. It's like it's like a foreign planet, and I would rather cut off my foot than have to live there. Sorry. I'm sorry. I love you Floridians, but come on. Why should any one state have so much pull? It's always Florida, or this year it was Florida, Michigan, Philadelphia, Wisconsin. There's 50 states, not those four, and it all came down to those four. That's messed up. That's messed up. And here's the last thing I'll point out, and this is something that you, we really could be protesting about, that really should be talked about 
and should be brought to the forefront. Um, in addition to clearly winning the popular vote by almost two million votes, which is which is so many votes that it's it's appalling. I just can't even get over it. Okay, so in addition to winning the popular vote, there is there's been a lot of disparities between the actual reported results of certain states and the exit polls from that state. Now, that may not mean anything to you on the surface, but here's basically an explanation, which I think is very kind of, you know, simplified for everyone, even guys like me, to understand. It's from the, I pulled it from the David Pakman show, which is a great show. You should check it out. Uh, I pulled it from him, and he explains basically something that is, I can't believe is not on the front page of every paper, okay? Let him explain it, because he can do it better than me. And you should check out his podcast, or his show, The David Pakman Show. I want to talk to you about something very, very serious. And we need to be looking at the data that I'm going to present to you today. And it has everything to do with a rigged election but not a rigged election in Hillary Clinton's favor. In fact, quite the opposite. We've looked at exit polls, and a number of data analysts have looked at exit polls from the November 8th presidential election. There are four key battleground states that Hillary Clinton ultimately lost according to the vote counts, but won according to the exit polls, okay? North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Florida. Had Hillary Clinton won those states, she would have won the presidential election. Hillary Clinton also won the national exit poll by 3.2%. But as you've been probably seeing, she is only ahead in the popular vote, which she did win by somewhere around half a percentage point. Let me give you some of the numbers and then we're really going to dig into this and stay with me because this is absolutely huge. Greg Palast is flat out saying this election was stolen from Hillary Clinton. I'm not saying that. I'm saying I want to present the data to you and then we'll we'll hear what you have to say and what else comes of this. Exit polls were done in 28 states. In 23 of those states, the discrepancy between the exit poll and the actual reported vote count favored Donald Trump. So when we look at exit polls versus reported vote counts in five states, it was an error or a discrepancy, we will call it, uh, or an inaccuracy in Hillary Clinton's favor. In 23 of those 28 states, it was a, a, a discrepancy in Donald Trump's favor. And in 13 of those 23, the discrepancy exceeded the margin of error of the exit poll. Now, some people might be saying we can't trust polls. Look at what happened before the election. You are fundamentally misunderstanding how exit polls are done. Exit polls have nothing to do with pre-election uh, opinion polls about who people say they're going to vote for, likely voters, registered voters. Exit polls are widely considered to be accurate, absolutely within the margin of error. Let's take a look at this from TDMS research, okay? And if I'll, I'll basically tell you what are the key issues here. If you look at North Carolina, you will see in the third column that Don Donald Trump lost North Carolina by two in the exit polls, yet one by 3.8 in the vote count. That is a 5.8 point swing relative to the exit polls. 
Is this proof of some kind of fraud? Well, no, it isn't. But that's a big difference. Look at Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, Trump lost by 4.4 in the exit polls, but won by 1.1 in the vote count. That is a 5.5 percentage point swing. Look at Wisconsin, where Donald Trump lost by 3.9 percent in the exit polls and won by 0.9 percent. That is a 4.8 percent swing. And Florida, which is often one of the closest of all states, Donald Trump lost by 1.4 percent in the exit polls, won by 1.3 percent in the vote count. That is a 2.7 swing. Now, this isn't my opinion or that of anybody in particular. When the vote count varies from the exit polls by more than the margin of error, it is considered an indicator of election fraud or irregularities. This is the U.S. Agency for International Development, which actually states in last year's booklet a discrepancy between the votes reported by the voters, which is what exit polls are, and official results may suggest that the results have been manipulated. All right. So there you have it. These are I mean, these are these are very credible agencies, very credible institutions who have done this research, put together this information, and where the hell is it? You don't, you're not hearing it on the NBC Nightly News, the World News Tonight, ABC. You're not hearing it on the CBS Evening News. You're not even hearing about it on MSNBC. You're not hearing about it anywhere. This is not something he made up. Those, those agencies he listed, those are real research agents. I mean, like, that is a big deal. And I guarantee you, if the positions were switched and it was Rose, I mean, Rosie O'Donnell, wow, hello. And it were Donald Trump, I can't believe I just did that. If it were Rosie O'Donnell who had been screwed, well, I would fight for her. But if it were Donald Trump who were on the other end of this, I guarantee you the Republicans wouldn't need half of these things. They would cling to anything they could find, and they would raise a fuss about it. They would be loud, they'd be consistent, they would be adamant, they would... Look at what they did with this email crap. There was nothing to that. She had a private email server, she apologized. Other secretaries of state had private email servers. That was all, that's it. That's it. There was no proof that she, that anything was hacked, there was no proof that any secret information was leaked. In fact, there was no proof... You know, even what Director Comey said back in July about how she was, they did send emails with classified information and it was highly responsible and careless. Even that was debunked the next day at a congressional hearing. I should pull that clip up for you because it's important for people to hear and no one's heard it because no one seems to care about, I just don't get it. You know, all these protests going on, all these people who are heartbroken and they are sincerely heartbroken. I'm, I can't, look, it's been, it's been over a week and I'm still reeling. People are still reeling. People are worried. People are scared. Um, people are angry. I'm angry, but focus it. Let's focus it and do something that actually matters. Call your Congress people, you know, point this stuff out to them. Um, if you're going to protest, Go armed with this kind of information. Don't just make a sign that says, love Trump's hate. That's true, and that's great, and that's a good message to have. But again, that's not going to result in, any, in any, any changes or something. This is stuff that should be looked into. His ties to Russia. The Russians, I don't know if we mentioned this last week, but Russian officials have since come out after the election and said, yes, 
we were in communication with the Trump campaign multiple times throughout the election. Why? What? That's huge news. That is huge news. And you barely heard about it. No one's talking about anything. All they're talking about is these white supremacists and total randoms that he's appointing to various positions in his cabinet. I just don't get it. I don't get it. This is a, this is a, this is, if there was ever a time to raise hell and to really go fight for something, I think it'd be this. I think the electors of the Electoral College should take, to, should do something different. Don't just go with the norm. This guy never wanted to be president, isn't fit to be president, lost a popular vote by millions. I don't know. I don't know. I don't mean to have a pie-in-the-sky notion where it's like, oh, yeah, the, the Electoral College is going to change the outcome. I don't know. I don't know. But I think if you're going to complain and you're going to protest, I think there needs to be some concrete evidence that this is a screwed-up system and that, you know, <clears throat> it was a rigged election in various ways. Only the irony is it was rigged in orange faces, fat, bloated, mm, Trump's favor. And who knew it? We didn't even know it, and now it's too late. Ugh. Okay, if you have an opinion about this, by all means, feel free to send us a message. Call in 718-928-9732, or write on our Facebook page. I posted the article in Time Magazine about the Electoral College and what they're really supposed to do, what the whole point of them is, we posted that article, so check that out as well. Facebook.com slash NBT Radio, or check us out and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Next Best Radio. All right, you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm John Lerner, and we will be right back. sun comes out from the rain clouds, I know it's going to be better. Climb a ladder up to the top of the world, we'll do it together. Oh, 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 
Okay, friends, it's just about time for my favorite segment of the show. We started it last week. We're continuing it this week. It's a segment I like to call... Must See Scary Movies. Yes, that's right. Must See Scary Movies. And tonight marks somewhat of a special occasion, folks. You see, I've done a Best of Scary Movies episode right here on Blog Talk Radio... A total of three times. And while this movie that we are going to feature tonight is, has been, and probably always will be one of my very all-time favorite scary movies of all time, I have never once gotten to really talk about it. It's actually been quite hilarious. And by hilarious, I naturally mean frustrating as all hell. But you know what? That's all ancient history. I've gotten over it clearly, and tonight is the night. Tonight's the night we're gonna make it happen. Did I really just do that? All right, well, anyway, let's not waste any more time, folks. Yes, tonight's featured scary movie it is a film called Pet Cemetery. What is this place? This was a burial ground. Whose burial ground? Big Mike You know, folks, this movie is an enigma in a lot of ways. It's not directed by some big-name horror director like Wes Craven or John Carpenter. In fact, not only that, but... Well, this movie came out in 1989 and was directed by a woman named Mary Lambert. Since then, Mary Lambert has gone on to direct only really a handful of films, some music videos, a couple of TV episodes. But when it comes to the films, they've all, in my opinion, kind of sucked the big one, including a sequel to this movie, Pet Cemetery 2, which came out three years later, which really sucked. And so how then did she pull this out of her bag of tricks? The world may never know. Another way in which this film is an enigma is that this Stephen King adaptation comes from a book that he, unlike any other of his publications, put away, thinking it unsuitable for publication, for fear that he had gone too far with the subject matter. 
Stephen King felt he had gone too far with the subject matter. For those of you who don't know, this is the guy who wrote Carrie, The Shining, Salem's Lot, and It, the movie with that terrifying evil clown. But it was this pet cemetery that he felt he had just gone too far with, and so did his wife, and so did his friend, another author. The last way in which this movie is an enigma, and then I promise we'll get into the heart and soul of it, is that it combines a number of different elements that you usually see solidified in a horror movie. It also involves a uniquely large amount of characters, uh, so much so that it'd be very easy to get kind of scatterbrained and to feel as if the film didn't have any real focus, but you never feel that way in this movie. It all ties together amazingly well. It has everything from ghosts to the actual undead to the hauntings of strained relationships in one's past to suicide and the sudden loss of an immediate family member. It's all there, and it all plays an incredibly effective role. And notice how none of those things I've mentioned innately involve animals. You see, folks, I think this film's title gives people the wrong impression. They hear Pet Cemetery and they immediately think, oh, okay, well, it's a film about dead animals, whatever. They can figure it out. They make one assumption or another and they assume it's not going to be interesting. The animals play a tiny role in the overall theme of this movie and it's really not about them at all. What this film's really about when you get right down to it is the idea of cheating death. Of bringing one back whom you loved so dearly and feel you lost unfairly which frankly, is pretty much any death one may experience. If you were given the opportunity to bring them back and to cheat fate, would you do it? Would you do it regardless of the possible consequences? It's an interesting question, and as we learn in this movie, it can have dire consequences. You see, friends, Lewis Creed was hired as the new doctor at a local college, And on day one, literally his first day on the job, he is faced with the challenge of treating the victim of a terrible, terrible accident. His name was Victor Pascal, and sadly, he dies on the operating table, but not before suddenly grabbing Lewis and whispering a mysterious and cryptic message to him just before dying. That night, in what is seemingly a dream... Victor visits Lewis in his sleep, warning him about the burial ground. Remember, Doc, the barrier was not meant to be crossed. The ground is somewhere. And thus our journey begins. The weeks pass, and come Thanksgiving time, the family pet cat, Church, short for Winston Churchill, gets run over by a semi-truck in the road right in front of their house. Lewis buries the cat on the Micmac grounds. Not but a few days after the burial, Lewis discovers Church in the garage, seemingly brought back to life. However, there is something different. Church is not the same. He seems evil an evil shell of his former self. Then, things take a drastic turn. And you know what, folks? I think I may just leave it at that. However, 
I would absolutely be remiss if I didn't at least touch on the single character in this movie that truly haunted me. The one image and the one character that stuck with me like none other and to this day scares the crap out of me. Not long after the tragic events, Rachel hears her husband, Louis, talking to their daughter, Ellie, about death and about what possibly happens when you die. It clearly makes her uncomfortable, and that night she approaches Louis in the bedroom to tell him why. My sister, Zelda. I know, she died. Spinal meningitis. She was in the back bedroom like a dirty secret. My sister died in in the back bedroom, and that's what she was. A dirty secret. I had to She certainly is, but from that point forward, the spirit of Zelda, her ill and absolutely disturbing-looking sister, comes after Rachel, comes after her for letting her die. cannot express the horror of seeing this emaciated corpse of a body disentangle itself and sit up straight to tell her what she had come back for. Rachel! Is that you? I finally came back for you, Rachel. I'm going to twist your back like mine so you'll never get out of bed again. Does this not already scare the crap out of you? You ain't seen nothing yet, folks. This movie is terrifying. It absolutely ranks up there with The Exorcist, and for me, far beyond. This is the scariest movie I have ever seen. It's very subjective, so it may not be the same case for you, but I guarantee it will scare you. I also want to mention, before wrapping this up, that a huge portion of what made this movie so good is the acting. I'm surprised I haven't mentioned it before. But the acting in this movie is strikingly good. From Lewis Creed to Zelda. Was that not terrifying? That actor playing Zelda, in the few scenes they were in, 
They were able to communicate and terrify better than any villain I've seen in the past 10 years for sure. An enigma it may be, but as far as I'm concerned, this film should go down in history as one of the scariest movies of all time. Don't believe me? No problem. Go on out, buy it, or rent it, and watch it. And then you tell me. This has been this week's edition of Must See Scary Movies. If you've seen this film and have anything you'd like to add, I would love to hear from you. If I could find 
Cause you just were chased off And we just went in on the Outback Square I fits them and buffs them And always unruffs them And none of them gets nowhere If anyone dashes to risk We fist with boppers Wham on the stand So keep good behavior That's your one lifesaver With Popeye the Sailor Man Oh boy You're listening to The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Face to Face singing on Popeye the Sailor Man on Saturday Morning Cartoon's Greatest Hits from 1995. How random was that song, you're probably thinking? Well, it all fits along. See, we're about to talk about someone who was in the movie musical Popeye. Not Robin Williams, but Shelley Duvall, who played Olive Oil. Shelley Duvall... uh, is probably most famous for starring alongside Jack Nicholson in one of my all-time favorite scary movies, also a Stephen King picture, like Pet Cemetery. But this one is called The Shining. No, I'm not going to be reviewing The Shining tonight. We already did our scary movie review. I should review it at some point, but I'm bringing it up because that is probably Shelley Duvall's most famous role she played. Wendy Torrance, alongside Jack Nicholson, in The Shining. Great, great film. 
it's great for a number of reasons. Some would say Stanley Kubrick's genius directing. Some would say the acting. I think, honest to God, Jack Nicholson, huge star, amazing actor. He was great in the film. But honestly, I think Shelley Duvall really worked well off of him as the weak, timid, windy. I think we should discuss what should be done. What should be done with him? I don't know. I don't think that's true. I think you have some very definite ideas about what should be done with Danny, and I'd like to know what they are. Well, I, I think maybe he should be taken to a doctor. You think maybe he should be taken to a doctor? Yes. When do you think maybe he should be taken to a doctor? As soon as possible. As soon as possible. I really could listen to that whole movie, or watch it for that matter. Movies typically are watched, not just listened to. But great movie, great scenes, great, great playing off of each other. Interesting question. Interesting question that Jack Nicholson would ask Shelley Duvall because, as it turns out, yeah, she's pretty much out of her mind. Uh, I don't know if any of you out there watch Dr. Phil. I, for one, do not. But every now and then, Dr. Phil will land a really big, interesting interview. He recently interviewed Burke Ramsey, the brother of JonBenet Ramsey, who was apparently some conspiracy theorist thought murdered his little sister at the age of nine. Anyway, he had him on recently. He's had a number of people on who are interesting for one reason or another. This past week, he had on Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall of The Shining, of Popeye, of Roxanne with Steve Martin, of fairy tale theater she's a she was a producer i think she won an emmy or two she produced a lot of stuff for showtime anyway she was a she was she was not you know a huge bombshell or a huge star i should say but she was you know she was a movie actress a well-known movie and television actress mainly in the 80s early 90s well she had kind of you know fallen from public view as of late she as far as I knew, she retired from acting in 2002. But, you know, I saw a documentary not long ago about Stanley Kubrick's life. It was called Stanley Kubrick, A Life in Pictures. And it interviewed a lot of people who were in his various movies. 2001 A Space Odyssey, Dr. Strangelove, Foam Metal Jacket, The Shining. And it was made probably in 2003 or 2004. And Shelley Duvall's in it. And, you know, sure, that's 12 years ago, but she's, she seems normal. She talks about her experience. She talks about, you know, what it was like to work with Stanley. She's sane. Well, she's not sane anymore. I mean, first of all, and I want to 
disclaimer out there, I'm not making, I'm not exploiting mental illness, which we're going to talk about in a second. But it was jarring to see her just from the, the very first shot of the, of the interview. When she walks in the room, I mean, unrecognizable, completely unrecognizable. You know, Shelley Duvall was not some, she wasn't a typical Hollywood bombshell. She wasn't, you know, she had really, she had black hair. She was really skinny. I mean, waif-like and, you know, svelte. She kind of had bug eyes. She was a character actress. Um, you know, but she was, you know, if nothing else, she was rail thin. She is huge. I mean, and it's not like, I look, I know as people get older, they tend to gain weight. Their metabolism slows down. You know, I'm not being like, God, she's fat. She should lose some weight. I'm saying she went from being svelte and, you know, she's, she, she's unrecognizable. Let me just say that. And right from the get-go, I mean, it's hard to believe that this is the same person. Right from the get-go, you realize, oh boy, she, she is off her rocker. Well, you said and, uh, that you need help. I help? I need help getting back to my house that I never should have left because it was my homestead. Yeah. Uh, despite whoever lived there before me, it became my house when I purchased it. How do you feel health-wise now? Health-wise? Mm -hmm. um, I need to get the Bermuda Triangle off of me. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, because I don't want a hairy chest. Right. Potter or otherwise. Right. And I'm are, not a Kia pet. Right. And are you in good health as far as like your your heart and your lungs and everything? Are you well, are you, fit? you know, damned if I do, damned if I don't. I mean if I say I'm healthy, first thing they'll do is hurt me tonight. Who will hurt you? Whoever is um, in security or at the bank. Uh-huh. Doing night work. Uh-huh. Well, that's what I want. Who's doing off-duty police work in black and white? Yeah. I mean, Dr. Phil's like, yeah. Yeah. And it goes on like that. I mean, that was a long clip. These clips are kind of long, but I'm going to play them for you. Because they are, it's like, what? I mean, she just... I'm trying to get the Bermuda Triangle off of me because I don't want a hairy chest. Huh? And you heard her refer to, they'll hurt me tonight. That, la that goes on throughout the whole interview. She refers to they, you know, they'll do this, they hurt my back, oh, well, they're going to, they always come after me. She's, she's got this weird paranoia going on. I mean, it, yeah. The man who's threatening me, uh, threatened me to, he said, you're going to, I'm going to hang you up on the wall in my classroom. Uh-huh. And who is this man? I don't know. Okay. Uh, but my guess would be he's been portrayed by uh, either John Hurd or John Hurt. <sighs> or, um, God, what is the other guy's name? Is like, or Father Goose. Uh-huh. It's very confusing, very disturbing to me because uh, they started out with ground zero and triple zero. It's like when a nun at some place tells you, you're almost triple zero. And she meant it. And 
anyway, and everybody was already listening in on me, even from Santa Monica. I mean, she just goes off. I mean, it's like, what are you talking about? And, you know, Dr. Drew, oh, excuse me, Dr. Phil, Dr. Drew, we are going to talk about in just a second. But Dr. Phil, you know, look, I am, like I said, I don't watch the Dr. Phil show. I've never been a huge Dr. Phil fan. I will tell you one interesting thing about Dr. Phil. Um, There's a little side note here. Dr. Phil graduated from a high school very close to the one I went to. He went to Shawnee Mission North. I went to Shawnee Mission East. It's very odd. So we grew up in the same area. And I can tell you, no one in that area talks like Dr. Phil. I don't know where this accent comes from because we grew up in the same area. Okay? So you need to uh, lose lose the act. He, I just, I've always thought that was very interesting. But anywho, back to the point. He's taken a very, he's gotten a lot of backlash for this interview. Um, you know, one of Stanley Kubrick's daughters that spoke out immediately and was like, this is disgusting. This is, ex- you know, you're exploiting a woman who's clearly sick. You know, this is outrageous. And she just, first of all, I have to say something. Who, I think her name, I think it was Vivian Kubrick, one of his daughters. Who is she to come out and be like, first of all, okay, so Shelley Duvall worked with her father almost 40 years ago. They didn't get along well. I mean, if you if there's one thing I you get from these documentaries I was talking about, it was that they didn't get along well. Shelley, you know, he he was hard on her, blah, blah, blah. My point is, you know, that was the that was the extent of their relationship. I mean, look, my dad was a pulmonologist, a doctor. Do you think if one of his patients from 30, 25, 30, 35 years ago comes out and does something good or bad, do you think I'm going to feel empowered to be like, look, my dad gave her an exam 35 years ago, and I think this is great. <laughs> It's very funny to me. It's like, huh? Who are, what? Okay. First, that's first of all. Second of all, and it's not just her, also Mia Farrow, who I like, but she kind of made the same comments. And her son, Ronan Farrow, followed suit. I like him a lot. I, th- I mean, I talked to him. I met him a few times. He's great. But they're really, I think, misguided here because not at no point does Dr. Phil, you know... <laughs> Be like, isn't this crazy? She's off her rocker. What a crazy bitch. He's not like making fun of her. He's not, I mean, he's in fact quite the contrary. I have to say, you know, throughout the entire interview, and in, in, what, from what you've heard, the little you've heard, it goes on like that the entire time. He'll ask her a question. I mean, he'll say, Did you have a nice breakfast? And she'll be like, Well, you know, breakfast is, uh, you know, they made me breakfast three days ago, and I ate it, and it blew up in my face, and my face is a face of royalty and the royal highness. And and she just, it's like, whoa, he's very patient with her. I mean, like, it would be hard for me. Here's a, okay, here's an example of, and this is, I mean, so he asks her how she sleeps at night, and just see where it goes. How do you sleep at night? How do I sleep? Do you sleep okay? Very difficultly, no. I, I sleep with clothes and anything I can think of, like, to to put behind me. 
because they compromised my back, my spinal cord. They hurt my spinal cord. How do they do that? They did that with a hornet, and it's uh, some kind of hornet that is, um, and I'm not calling Bette Midler a whore, and I'm not calling the group Chicago a whore. I'm just saying, here's this insect. It's about this long inside measurements. Uh-huh. And um, it's striped on the abdomen like a, a, a yellow jacket. How long has that been going on? It was only once. Do you spend- okay, okay. Look, see, you know, he's very patient. He listens, he lets her go on. He never says like, look, hello, rain it in here. I have to say, when I first watched this interview and she she starts talking, well, they hurt my back with a hornet and and I'm not calling Bette Midler a whore. <laughs> I mean, what? Okay, again, I'm not laughing at her. I'm just, come on, let's have a sense of humor about this. Um, that was so random. She said, they hurt my back. I can't sleep. How they hurt my back? They did it with a hornet. It hurt my spinal cord. A hornet? It's a hornet, and I'm not calling Bette Midler a whore. She, like, it's like she just, she can't keep a single thought, a train of thought. So she's clearly sick, and, and, you know, Dr. Phil never, I don't know, exploiting it is like, you know, using it to get, I don't know. It's not like he's putting her in some freak show and charging money for tickets. He's exposing, you know, it's, okay, when I saw this, first of all, I watched the interview. I was interested because I love The Shining. Um, I love her in The Shining. I know the work she's done. I have wondered kind of whatever happened to her. So to see the condition she's in, I'm now concerned. I hope she gets help. He was there to help her. I mean, like, he was trying to provide her with care, get her to the right doctors. It didn't go very well. I mean, she, again, she, because she would, she refused to, I mean, she went to the doctors he sent her to, but he refused to, or she refused to sign the documents once she got there. And it was just, the whole thing was just a struggle. And frankly, I was really moved and impressed by all that. Dr. Phil and his crew did to try and help her. She needs help. I mean, listen to how she's responding. I mean, this is a woman who, you know, was so creative. She did fairy tale theater for Showtime. She did kind of like a Tales from the Crypt type show for Showtime. She produced all kinds of stuff. And, you know, she's just, she's losing her mind. You know, like, this is the last clip I'll play, but listen to how many times he has to ask her a single question. I mean, it's it's pretty impressive on his part. Do you spend a lot of time alone? Um, so I'm off the train. Danny DeVito said it all, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> when you're spelling train T-R-A-N-E. <laughs> or is that T-R-A-I-N? Do you spend a lot of time alone? My grandmother on my father's side worked for the railroad. Oh, they do. Are, are you by yourself a lot? Uh, too much. Yeah. So when these people invited me out, I thought, well, that's nice. You know what? I'm going. Yeah. Uh, despite everybody else going, let me call the FBI first and, and check them out. It's like, do you know how, how long I live life without the FBI checking everything out first? 
One, two, four, four, five. One, two, four, four, five. Tell me about that. My home address. Uh -huh. A forty-five is a type of pistol. Right. Forty-five caliber. Yes. Uh -huh. So it's a double lot six. It's a you know it's a shotgun, a sawed-off shotgun. Have you seen uh, the document? So, you know, he says, "Do you spend a lot of time alone?" Well, my grandma. You know, that's not edited. So he's, you know, are you spending a lot of time alone? She talks about her grandmother and what she did for a living. Do you spend a lot of time alone? Danny DeVito said it all, didn't he? Huh? And by the way, when you hear, you often hear, she'll say something, then you'll hear this. <laughs> and it kind of sounds like she's maybe laughing at herself. I actually think that's a result of a respiratory problem. I, I used, when I was growing up, I had a, a teacher who was not healthy and, you know, it sounded like after almost everything she'd say, it'd be like, hi, you know, can I use the restroom, please? Yeah, you can. <laughs> it was like, it's like this weird gasp for air. I don't think she's really laughing. I think that's a sign of a respiratory problem. So she's clearly, I mean, and if you see her, you can see that she's not healthy. So, anywho, you know, I'm talking about this because it was it was deeply fascinating to me as someone who loves The Shining um, I, I actually haven't seen the Popeye movie, but, you know, she was in it with Robin Williams. And that's another thing. Robin Williams is brought up at one point in this interview. And she says, it, at certain moments, she's kind of, nor she seems lucid. She can hold a conversation a little bit. You know, she, when she talks about people she knew and experiences she had, she'll kind of, you know, get going on a roll here. And you'll think, okay, yeah, so maybe she's kind of snapped out of it. But then, you know, she'll just take a drastic turn and start rambling again when she mentioned robin williams she said that she loved working with him he was so funny it was a lot of fun and then she says that she doesn't think he's really dead dr phil says well what do you mean like what do you where do you think he is shape-shifting <laughs> what do you, do you see him half yes that's what she says this is what she says so you know when it comes to is this exploitative exploitive I don't know. You know, I guess I'm on the fence. I think that I understand that this is putting someone on camera who's obviously not in a great state. But at the same time, why are we talk why would we view mental illness so differently than um if she had a heart condition? You know, ex exposing it if nothing else will at least let people know of the problem and hopefully maybe some people will reach out and try and help her. Maybe some people who are closer to her than Dr. Phil. But the last thing I want to play, and I have to pull this up, is um, a reaction from Dr. Drew Pinsky. He's very familiar with backlash like this as well. He did celebrity rehab. I, I listened to um, Dr. Drew's podcast. He hosted a show on HLN. I like Dr. Drew a lot. I think he's incredibly smart. I think he's really caring. If you listen to his shows as opposed to just see him on TV every now and then, you can see that he is, has genuine compassion for people that he works, that he, his patients. And so he gets a lot of backlash a lot too. Um, sometimes when on celebrity rehab, people would leave his facility and relapse and some of them died and they blamed Dr. Phil. Oh, God, they blamed Dr. Drew. Excuse me. I'm getting my TV doctors confused. Anywho, Dr. Drew was asked about this very situation and asked to kind of chime in on what he thinks of the backlash. Give it a listen. There's an ad With first. With McCafe because... rewards in the app, buy five McCafe beverages.
there's an ad first because I'm not playing it through audio. I'm playing the YouTube video. I apologize. Okay, here's Dr. Drew Pinsky responding to the backlash for Dr. Phil. There's no reason to age, okay? I'm not liquor. I'm not hard liquor. Dr. Phil's interview today with troubled actress Shelley Duvall is being called exploitive given Shelley's mental state. Another famed TV doc, Dr. Drew Pinsky, has been criticized in the past for his troubled celebrity interventions. But now Dr. Drew offers his take on this controversy, which was sparked by criticism from Stanley Kubrick's daughter. What's your reaction? My reaction is I'm a little disturbed by her reaction. I, I understand that she's uncomfortable, Kubrick's daughter's uncomfortable seeing Shelley Duvall with chronic mental illness. Take a minute. But that's her discomfort. Shelley is perfectly comfortable with this. Just because she's psychotic, she has all these delusions, that's, that's evidence of a chronic psychotic illness of some type. But just because she has a brain disease doesn't mean we should treat her differently than she had a disease of any other organ. Our discomfort is one thing. Her discomfort, look, she's cognitively aware. People with psychotic and mental illness consent to things all day long. She wanted to do this interview. She consented to it. Have a seat. Dr. Drew has not treated Shelley Duvall, and we have not independently verified his assessment of her mental state or level of consent. If she is suffering with a mental illness, is she in the right state of mind to be making these decisions? The answer is, it's hard to tell. The reality is people with mental illness like this consent to all sorts of things. They will sign legal documents. They will consent to medical treatment. And they usually don't think back and say, unless they're floridly psychotic, they usually don't think back and say, gee, I wasn't in my right mind. They took advantage of me. Is I, it exploitative, though, for that, ratings? Shelley Duvall, when she gets treatment and is better, is she going to look back and say, damn, they exploited me? Or she's going to, is she going to say, you know what? They wanted to do it. I wanted to do it. It helped me. I, I keep thinking to myself, I'm just so glad that mental illness is, we can look at it and talk about it and not stigmatize it and not react to it the way Kubrick's daughter did and with such horror and aghast. So you're saying the benefit is for the public good to see somebody that was a celebrity that we knew from movies like The Shining, Popeye, to see that she too is suffering from this mental illness, there is much to be gained by I that. I think there is potentially much to be gained and really as long as she is consenting to it, good for her. Would it have been better for Dr. Phil to perhaps meet with Shelley Duvall in private and treat her that way? So the question is about outcome, right? Is it better for the patient outcome-wise? And that's, you, you can't really answer that question, right? Dr. Phil hasn't commented on the criticism, but Dr. Drew is familiar with scrutiny over public versus private treatment. Six of his celebrity patients passed away after being on his reality show. Celebrity rehab yep. came under a lot of fire because some of the people you were treating ended up. All right, so then they get into his his show. I think, yeah, so, you know, take from that what you will. I agree with him. I, you know, it's hard because I get it. I can see why people would think that it's not, no one would want to be put on television in that state. At the same time, though, who was thinking about her until this week? You know, she had fallen from public view. Who, she's living in some small town in Texas. She's obviously not taking care of herself or being taken care of. I watched it because I liked her movies. I'm interested in her well-being. I'm in, When I saw this, it, I was shocked. I was sad. I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm going to – I want to get in touch and send her money or anything like that because, you know, I don't want to – you know, I'm just being honest here. But I did – I wasn't 
I didn't watch it for like the freak show value, if that makes any sense. And I can't imagine a lot of people did. They were probably more interested to see what has become of someone that they know from some great, great films. So anyway, that was in the news. I thought it was very interesting. It had me intrigued. Um, And that, you know, we're just about out of time here tonight. So I'm going to play a few more songs and then we will wrap it up. You're listening to The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. J'ai vu New York, New York USA J'ai jamais rien vu d'eau J'ai jamais rien vu d'aussi haut C'est haut, c'est haut New York, New York USA J'ai vu New York, New York USA J'ai vu New York, New York USA J'ai jamais rien vu d'eau, j'ai jamais rien vu d'aussi haut, c'est haut, c'est haut, New York, New York is a fasted building, Rockefeller Center, International Building, Waldorf Astoria, Pan American Building, Bank of Manhattan, All right, that just about does it for us tonight. You've been listening to The Next Best Thing. I'm John B. Lerner. John, J-O-N, B as in boy, Lerner, L-E-R-N-E-R. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Next Best Radio. Or, and uh, like our Facebook page. That's where you'll see all of the articles we refer to, all the cool stuff we have coming up. That is facebook.com slash NBT radio, all one word. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And we will see you next time, next Monday, same time, same place, right here on Radio Free Brooklyn every Monday night from 10 o'clock p.m. to 12 o'clock a.m. I hope everyone has an magnificent week. I'm sure there'll be a lot to talk about next week. So until then, be well, everybody.
Thanks for tuning in to Radio Free Brooklyn, a fully volunteer-owned and operated radio station. If you like what you're listening to, go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com and click on the Donate button. When you donate your hard-earned dollars to the station, you are supporting the Radio Free Brooklyn community and independent radio in the heart of the Internet. Go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com and click on Donate. Thank you.